Hey, listeners, to help keep delivering in-depth wine business content, we've carefully selected partners for our show that we think will resonate with you. This episode's partner is Sonoma State University's Global Wine Executive MBA program, which is one of the only MBA programs in the world with a focus on the wine industry. We have Brad Groper, Vice President of Sales at Longmeadow Ranch and 2021 graduate of the Global Wine Executive MBA program at Sonoma State. So what was the one thing you got out of the Sonoma State Global Wine Executive MBA program that you'll remember forever? Well, it's probably the same thing that I tell anyone that decides to come work with me. And that is, I don't know everything. And that I'm always open to learning. Everyone can always you know, keep things open to learn. So I learned a lot. I learned more about my management style and leadership skills with Liz Toch, which was, she was great, and her team. I learned a little bit more about the sustainability sustainability models and, and modeling out some farming practices and things of that nature. I, I learned how to put together actually a, a solid business plan, which I'm, I'm in the middle of or towards the end of right now. So pieces of that, which were great things I've always read and seen, but never done myself. So it's forced me to, to do those things. Welcome to X Chateau, X Chateau, the podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today is our 50th episode and we're going live on Clubhouse. Just over a year ago, Peter and I started X Chateau Wine Business Podcast, and the idea was to try and build a community around the business of wine. Part of that has been engaging with our listeners as well as our guests, but we haven't really had the chance to do it with a wide group of listeners and followers. And we've kind of done it on an ad hoc basis. So we thought we'd do something a little bit more proactive and go on Clubhouse. So we got all set up so that we could do the recording. And here we are one year in. Yeah, our 50th episode is a year. We started towards the beginning of the pandemic and some of our first episodes were around the impact of that with Laura McFay from Tribeca Wine Merchants and Tim Marson at Wine.com. And certainly Wine.com has seen their business explode. And both those, I think, retailers have seen business do really well. And Stephanie was asking earlier about what's happening now in the US with things starting to open up and come back. I've certainly seen from my clients and just reading articles and seeing in San Francisco that people are definitely going out a lot more and buying the restaurant industry is starting to come back very strongly. And there's an interesting dislocation of labor where there's a lot of people trying to hire, but a lot of people moved and went to other locations. And so there's not the right mix of talent in the right places. So there's a lot of open jobs right now in wine, in hospitality at many different levels. It is exciting to see how well at least California and the rest of the U.S. has done in terms of getting vaccinations and that the wine industry was on the front line of that and was able to make sure that they were taken care of along with obviously medical professionals and teachers and things like that. But I was really happy to see how well the country's taken to that. And now that things are starting to open up, we're going to start to see an impact because in California, it's not just about selling the wine. It's also about the tourism and the travel that is all tied with that. And now that Juliana was mentioning before we started recording that everything's are starting to go back to normal in Napa and we're starting to have indoor tastings and not have to have outside pavilions or outdoor tastings, which it gets warm in the summer in Napa. So that's a good thing. And for certain markets, that's a big deal. When we interviewed Javier Pagas of the Cava Dio, he was telling us about how much tourism impacts Spain and the sales of Cava within Spain. So I think that will start to come back. And Juliana Colangelo, who we interviewed around social media influencers, do you have a view on 
sort of how things are coming back? Yeah, in our world, you know, with media, we're starting to plan press trips, we're starting to plan in-person events. So for us, it's going back to some of our core activities and core brand building activities that we were doing pre-pandemic. So those in-person activations, and we're hearing great response from media. They're ready to get back on the road, visit wineries in person, go to tastings, go to events. So that's one of the bigger changes we're seeing in our day-to-day and how we work is that return to quote-unquote normal with our media relations efforts. And is that slowing down all the virtual things or is it all the virtual plus all the in-person that was going before? So you're doing like more than you were before. There's kind of this transition period where we're still doing some virtual events. Like we've got an event planned for June 2nd, for example. And then we're starting to plan for the in-person events more like July, August and beyond. So we're wrapping up and still doing a lot of virtual events. But I don't think that virtual space is going away. For example, one of our clients is hiring a virtual tasting room manager for their hospitality who will be permanently focused on executing virtual tastings for clients. Because I think what wineries realize is, wow, we can reach so many more consumers by hosting virtual tastings. Because if you think about it, not everyone can make a trip to Napa or get on a plane or get up to wine country. So I don't think they will go away entirely, but I do think you'll see demand from consumers go down a little bit, especially in the beginning. People are just so excited to get back out in person. But I do anticipate we'll see a hybrid both in our work with media, hosting media virtual tastings and in-person, and as well as with consumers. I think there still will be a demand for virtual tastings for consumers, especially so many companies are going permanently remote. They're still looking for team-building activities and ways to entertain clients and virtual events and virtual wine tastings are a great option for those. So we also have, as a speaker, uh, Barb Tyree, who is the marketing director for Repor, who was one of our sponsors over the last year. And we interviewed Tom Lutz, the CEO, to tell us all about Repor and their wine preservation technology. But Barb, you guys sell both to individuals and to businesses like restaurants. Have you seen a change in sort of restaurant demand recently? Yeah, we really have as everybody's world kind of got turned upside down March a year ago. Our focus had always been on restaurant and by the glass programs. And we had to make that quick shift to other things when the businesses shut down. But I won't say the wineries helped keep our lights on, but all those virtual tastings that we talked about have really supported us over the last 12 or 15 months. We pivoted also to the consumer side, everybody's home, drinking better wine, actually. And big question always is, what am I going to do to keep these wines fresh that I can't finish in one sitting? So it's been an awesome year for us, amazingly enough. And now we're seeing our restaurants are starting to come back online and rather quickly and paying a lot of attention to any loss in a wine program as they take a look at every penny that they're spending. So we're very optimistic about what's ahead and just thankful we made it through this year and hopefully some smooth sailing coming up. I'm in Florida and our governor just lifted 100% of the restrictions today. So it's a definite party here. Barbie, you were one of our first advertisers on the podcast. And part of that is we tried to figure out how to do advertising in a smart way that was still authentic and genuine. And so we did little vignettes of interviewing some of the customers. And I got to tell you, it was really exciting to hear from different psalms and wine buyers in wineries, how they use the repour. And actually, when the restaurants were talking about like, hey, when we started closing down, it was like, how do we save these wines from Friday to Monday or for Friday to Tuesday? Because you often have Monday off. And then now they're just like, it's even more important that if they're doing any kind of like to go by the glass, 
class programs and things like that. It was really fun to hear these different takes and real business applications of using a really simple device, but very effective at the same time. So I want to thank you for your support of the podcast. We greatly appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. I guess one of the most exciting things that's happening for us now, I think so many restaurants, even if they were partially open, were doing either no by the glass or just kind of tiptoeing into it. And we're hearing from restaurants every day saying, you know what, we can really do something with our by the glass thanks to Report now. So it's quite gratifying. We're so thankful for these relationships we've built and you guys have been great supporters and we really appreciate you too. We should switch gears to fine wine because I think that when we first got into this podcast, we thought it was going to be a little bit like the 2008-2009 market crash and that fine wine would take a hit or some of the players would take a hit. But we didn't quite see that. And we have Lauren McFade up on stage from Trebekah Fine Wines and Trebekah Wine Merchants. And I'd love to hear her take to see how customers' purchasing behavior has changed during the pandemic after being a whole year in. I would say, I think it kind of echoes what we talked about even a year ago. Buying has just, it's really expanded. People are getting a lot more adventurous, specifically to fine wine. I find people are kind of not necessarily trading down in quality, but trading down in price. And so instead of drinking the $300 Premier Cru Burgundy, they're now still looking at the best Chardonnay but looking to new regions in Australia and South America, South Africa. Yeah, I think it's that middle ground. And I've been hearing it from other people around the trade too. It's the barbell kind of effect. The top end and the low end are still strong, but the middle ground for kind of these classic regions is a little bit harder to sell these days. So we'll see. I mean, I think we just reopened our store to the public a couple of weeks ago. So It'll be interesting to see what people are actually walking into the store and grabbing off the shelves versus email offers or online shopping. I think that's probably maybe more indicative of how people are feeling about what they buy. But So when we did talk a year ago, we had the tariffs that were essentially an immediate price hike on a bunch of wines. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what is your impression now after a change of presidency and some new policy changes? No more tariffs. Woo. Yeah, no, that was a huge, huge, huge win this year. The owner of Tribeca Wine Merchants, Ben Enough, was, I think, fairly important in getting that to the forefront of the Biden administration. But yeah, I mean, it makes a big difference. First of all, we've been buying in Europe again, which is great. And we hadn't since October 2019, not really. And the issue right now is shipping. I think everybody's feeling this. So all of the backlog from a year of tariffs, people are starting to buy and ship again, and everybody else is shipping. So that's been an issue. But yeah, I think there was definitely a big contingent of people that were sitting around saying, do I want to buy Burgundy? Do I want to buy Bordeaux when there is this tariff? Or should I just wait a year? I don't know if those buyers have come back yet and said, now I'm ready. And there's so many factors to factor in. Right now we have 2019 Burgundy coming on and it's rumored to be great. And especially with the frosts in Burgundy this year, there's going to be a shortage coming up. So, you know, Buying behavior, there's a lot of factors to factor in, but I do think the tariffs getting repealed will make people a lot more confident and hopefully come back to buying French wines. But the world has changed. You know, maybe people are sold on Argentinian Chardonnay. We also have a former guest, Maureen Downey, who is an expert in the fine wine category and not just counterfeits, but high-end wines in general. Maureen, have you seen any mix shifting happening as things are starting to open up? Not really. I think the biggest difference in what I've seen Look, the kind of collections that I work with, these guys have been drinking throughout the pandemic. The only difference is now they need to buy because they've drained their sellers. But other than that, we've seen different trends. I don't think it has as much to do 
for them with the tariffs? Because when you're talking about buying $1,000 bottles, you're not really worried about an additional amount on that. If you can get DRC from DRC, you're going to get it no matter what. But we have seen a trend towards Italian is the only thing that I really think is a big change. The other thing that we have seen actually, though, during the pandemic and even now is an increased sale of counterfeits by some of the players that would be expected. I mean, there's a new story out today where Inside Edition bought a very expensive bottle of whiskey from Acker Retail, the oldest wine shop in America, and they sent it back and it indeed tested counterfeit. So the problem's still out there. I think that with retail shops closed, a lot of people started buying from brokers and in gray markets, and that is where we find counterfeits. And those gray market wines that are counterfeited end up in even legitimate retailers' possessions. So it's been a weird year, but I've never been busier and collectors are still happily collecting along. In a world full of sadness, wine has brought a lot of joy to people in the last 18 months. Interesting. So you've seen, because people are buying through gray market and things like that, you've seen the proliferation of counterfeits. Is there actually an increase in production, is your belief, or just that there people are more buying what they can get? I think it's because people are buying what they can get. Even though people don't go to shops, people don't go to wine shops to buy fine wine. They buy fine wine from email offers and email correspondences or picking up the phone and talking to a sales rep. They buy futures and everything. But... I think that having all the stores closed, what it really was is having a whole bunch of people home sitting on their computers bored. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I drank less wine and I bought a ton more of it over the last year just because if if I couldn't be drinking it, I was buying it. Like, at least I could psychologically enjoy something about it. So I think a lot of people were doing that and they were looking to new venues to purchase and new outlets and kind of searching for different things. And we've seen some counterfeits creep back in, also at auction. Maureen, I've definitely drank more and bought more. (laughs) (laughs) I'm down on the drink side, but I'm way up on the buy side. Actually, I'm up on the drink side for Champagne and Brunello de Montalcino, but I'm down on my drink side in Burgundy, but I have bought a lot of it. That's opposite some of the trends I think we've seen with champagne sales having been down for so long most of last year, but starting to trend up again. Yeah, it's definitely some of those bottles you want to share with other people. And I think that it's an interesting thought process of like people are drinking through their cellars, but maybe if they have a pod or something like that, they were maybe opening up more special bottles for their close friends or the people that they felt safe drinking around. Yeah, we actually had a few clients in Napa who started selling more of their own back vintage bottles. I know there was a mention of more people buying in gray market and higher potential for counterfeits. So several of our winery clients in Napa are selling more from their old vintage programs and their library programs. And there you're buying obviously direct from the winery. So the providence and quality of the bottle is a better guarantee. But those programs seem to be performing pretty well, especially Q4 last year around the holidays and gifting and yeah, people just opening up more of those special bottles and not really waiting right for the right time and no time like the present. You know, Juliana, it's really interesting that you say that because that is actually a new area of projects for my company. And we're currently working with a couple different companies. And I think there's a few things around that. Number one, we've had some acquisitions of some kind of cultish producers, especially in Napa by these large corporations who don't really know how to market 
to these kinds of collectors. And number two, there isn't very much wine coming out of Napa for 19 and 20. We had fires, we've had all sorts of issues. And I think that a lot of the library wines that are being released are being released because they need revenue, because they don't have the same level of wine that they had before. But I am loving working on these library projects because I'm all about provenance. So if you can get amazing Judgment of Paris wines direct from the producer today, that's amazing. And we also have with us Tess Roach, who is the marketing lead for WineBid, where we interviewed CEO Russ Mann around the auctions. Tess, do you have any thoughts on how people's behavior is changing, maybe on WineBid and coming out of the pandemic? Hi, everyone. I'm Tess. This is also my first kind of clubhouse. I would say that when we spoke last year, we were up in not only returning wine bidders and buyers, but as well as new bidders and buyers. And we are continuing to see those numbers hold. I would agree that people really love the convenience. And I am definitely with Maureen that it's just easy to buy wine. And even if you're not drinking it more, it's right at your fingertips. And we're also seeing and continuing to see a lot of individuals tune in to our weekly auction right before close. And so we're seeing an increase in active bidders. It truly is more of an event, a Sunday night online activity, if you will, for a lot of our customers to come in and see what lots they're winning and tracking and what lots they simply can't live without. What we've also seen over the past year is we've seen a greater increase of younger buyers purchasing than we have in years past. And that also kind of goes hand in hand with our increase in mobile bidders. So we're seeing more individuals purchasing via our mobile app or on our mobile website than on desktop as well. And so not only is it at your fingertips at home, but it's really at your fingertips wherever you are as you do start to leave the house. And so for now, that's continued to remain constant for us. Yeah, it's interesting to see how the transition to more of a mobile first has really started to change. We've obviously seen new developments in the retail space, social media. We've seen Vivino get an investment, Drizzly get acquired, Wine.com has blown up. There's also flash sale sites, wine still sold out. So there's a whole bunch of different buying behaviors that are kind of evolving at the moment. And a lot of it is on always from people's phone. And it's really interesting to see how, you know, obviously WineBid's been doing online auctions for quite some time. It's interesting to see how pushing towards a mobile centric and making sure these websites work really, really well on your phone is becoming more and more important. To me, it talks a little bit about the age demographic of who is actually buying wine these days. Yes, I absolutely agree. And there's so many different wines for people to choose from. Like we're still seeing a very strong demand for first growth Bordeaux and your Grand Cru Burgundy. But kind of commenting to what a couple others have said, we're seeing an increase in more unique wines and that haven't been traded as seriously on the auction market in the past. So New World wines, so Australia, New Zealand, South America. It's really interesting to see how that's also changing as well. Well, you know what's fun about that, Tess, is it's actually a return. So I'm old enough to remember when those things were traded. And I think that's really exciting. And I think that that will give you guys an edge if you do 
trade and some of the less expensive, more fun wines. I mean, when we started auctions in New York, we were regularly trading $40 bottles. And now the minimum live auction lot is $1,000, but they really don't want to put bottles in a live auction that aren't a couple hundred bucks per. And while that's really fun for a very small group of buyers, if we're going to get young people involved and get new people involved, you want to have a mixed lot of Savignier or a mixed lot of non-vintage champagne and from some growers that aren't always in the top five list. And I think that it's exciting that WineBit is able to kind of return to that fun because the fun of auctions is the exploration. It's the ability to buy crazy stuff that you otherwise would never be able to get your hands on and have some fun with it. So that kind of makes me want to go and buy wine at WineBit. Absolutely. That's what I love to hear. And I just showed my age a little bit by saying that as well. I did want to let people in the audience know that if they want to come up on stage, please raise your hand. We're happy to bring people up. This is kind of an active conversation. This is our first time doing a live podcast that we're recording. So keep in mind, it is being recorded. So if you'd like to come up and ask about any of the 49 other episodes that are currently live on our website, we'd be happy to talk about any of the topics. Peter and I definitely have a couple of favorites. But we're also more than happy to talk about some of the stuff that we're rolling out with a bunch of episodes that we have edited and ready to go. So yeah, please feel free to raise your hand. I am curious of what this group is most excited about as we go back to normal from the wine industry. If we can maybe do a round table, like as we find the new normal, you know, some of the virtual tastings and things that will stay around. But I'm curious on what are you most excited about as we get back to normal for the wine industry? I'm most excited to get seminars and conventions and stuff like that back. I want Vanitaly, I want Texom, I want, especially in the United States, the wine trade is so spread out that those types of events are really the only time when we get to come together. And so I want for there to be big events in New York so that I can travel out there and see all my friends. And I'm looking forward to the social aspect of wine and why being in the wine industry is so fun is because the people are great. So. I look forward to being with the people again. Juliana, Tess, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'd have to agree with Maureen. Definitely getting back in person to some of those great events is going to be fantastic. And seeing all our colleagues in person and being able to collaborate and work together in person again, I think is going to be fantastic. But I'm also curious to see how some of the consumer purchasing behaviors last or extend beyond the pandemic specifically with online purchasing. I'm really curious and hopefully excited and maybe cautiously optimistic to see that trend continue and more people purchasing wine online, which I think is a good thing. It's the the way of the future and how people are purchasing most of the things they consume. So I'm also just excited to see how some of these trends continue to play out post-pandemic. Barbara, Tess, any thoughts? Yeah, I agree with both of you, too. I miss that interaction with people more than anything. I mean, we've been really loosey-goosey here in Florida, but you still are cautious about what you do, and we go out to restaurants rarely. So I'm kind of excited to jump back into that, get back out to California, see some of our customers face-to-face. I'm just kind of hungry for that interaction off of a computer screen. And I think all the signs are we're in for a go-go economy, so I'm excited to see how that plays out as the states open more and more more and where the consumers are going to be putting their dollars. I could not agree more. I think being specifically online all the time in the past, it's been really exciting and unique to be able to meet our various customers across the world. And so I'm looking forward for that as well. Peter, do you want to jump into the next topic? 
Yeah, Juliana mentioned buying online. And Robert, you mentioned some of the different ways people are buying online. And I'd love to get different people's takes on how that evolution is for our podcast. What's a lasting trend versus a fizzling fad in terms of some of these different innovations of how people are buying wine, mostly online, be it through Vivino, like that app where you take a photo of the bottle and there's some social element to it. But as Heine, the CEO, is telling us, it's actually not that much about social interaction to flash sale sites that came out of the Great Recession, like Last Bottle or Wine Still Sold Out. Are those still thriving or are they a thing of the past where things are becoming more interesting? Like there's gamification with things like underground sellers that you buy one wine, but they upgrade you for one bottle to something else to like all sorts of different specialized wine clubs like Wink or we had on our show, Will Blackman and his wine MVP. I'm curious to get people's thoughts on what do you see as a lasting trend or fizzling fad in terms of this new ways of buying wine? I think it's important to start by recognizing that most fine wine in the world, and we're talking about fine wine, has always been purchased sight unseen. So buying wine is not a new thing for fine wine. I think that the sea change has been in the changing demographic and that people couldn't go and browse the wine store or go to BevMo and walk up and down the aisle and decide which label they were going to grab. So I don't think that purchasing wine on... I mean, nobody goes to a wine store and randomly picks up 10 cases of Mouton. So I think that it's important to recognize that while this has been a change for a lot of consumers, and what it's done is it's brought a lot of consumers who would otherwise have purchased wine at the grocery store or at a local package store, that has changed. And I think that all the apps and things that make it easier and they give people who maybe haven't studied wine like we have, if you like chocolate, you're going to like this wine. There's tons of opportunities out there. So I think that that's changing how people buy wine, but I don't necessarily think that it's changed how people buy fine wine at the top end. Nadine Brown, who's a psalm in DC, popped up on stage. Do you want to introduce yourself and add into the conversation? Sure. Hello, everyone. Thanks, Robert. I'm a longtime sommelier in the city and just wanted to come up and say hello and echo. I got to travel to Texas for Texom to be a judge at their International Wine Awards. And it was pretty incredible and I think emotional for everyone that was there. And I think we were surprised at how emotional it was just to be able to get back with colleagues. And my second thing is DC actually really did well. The retailers did well. We're kind of the wild, wild west out here in terms of our wine laws. So I think that helped. And we do have some really good, established 30, 40 plus year old retailers here in the city that people really supported. I'm excited about just the possibilities and just things that we don't even know that are coming in terms of the way people drink wine and find new wines. We know a lot, but in some sense, I feel like we know nothing. But thank you so much and such a great conversation. 
Nadine, in our latest episode, we interviewed Mia Vanderwater, who's our master sommelier down at Encote in Miami, Encote, New York City, I guess. She splits between the two. But she was talking about the evolution of Psalms, and she was basically saying that there's always going to be these like high-end fine dining, but she was complaining about in New York City that you just walk into a restaurant, and no matter where you'd go, you'd end up spending a couple hundred dollars per person, and then you'd walk away thinking, it's like, why did I spend that much money? And they didn't realize it. And she was like, I don't know that there's a place for that anymore, that there's going to be, you know, maybe a better stratification of restaurants going forward was one of her predictions. I'm curious what your thoughts are in the DC scene in terms of obviously a bunch of restaurants have gone out of business all across the country, but do you think when it gets back to normal that we'll still see that upper echelon of fine dining? And do we think that the middle will kind of thin out a little bit or what are your predictions there? I would agree with her at a certain extent, you know, in terms of people just not having these 30 page wine programs that are really top heavy I think sommeliers are going to need to do more and everyone in the restaurant industry. I mean, we're also having a huge staffing issue here in D.C. We had before, but just kind of amplified right now for a lot of reasons. I think the way we treat our service employees from owners to guests, but that's a whole other conversation. I do think there will be changes. I'm starting to do some guest psalm appearances and offer sommelier services to restaurants that are not particularly going to hire back a full-time psalms. Yeah, stuff like that. Awesome. Thanks for that perspective. And Robert mentioned that Repor has been a sponsor of our show. And so we asked them if they could do anything for this one-year anniversary, and they gladly offered up a 20% discount using the code XCHATEAU as we spell it, X, the letter X, and then Chateau. And this is for both retail and wholesale purchases. So if you have a wholesale account, that works too. Barb, do you want to add to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. And the answer to you guys is always, of course, whatever you want to do, we're happy to do. But yeah, we'd love to extend a discount out to anyone who's on the call or beyond. If you want to give us a try retail, you can order on report.com using that code. If you don't have a wholesale account and are interested in maybe for your location, you can just reach out to me. My contact information is in my bio and I'll take care of you. If you'd rather just have a four pack sample to try, let me know and I can get those on the way as well. But yeah, that's all I've got. And Nadine, I just wanted to say, I feel like I know you. I followed along on Instagram when you guys were at TechSom for the judging. And it was pretty emotional, I think. It kind of gave me cold chills when you said that. It was great to watch you guys in action. Yeah, and honestly, I'm more jealous of the DC Psalm meetup you guys had with a bunch of collectors contributing. That made me more jealous than TechSom. So in terms of looking back at the one year, I got to ask Peter. Peter, what was your favorite episode of the last 50 we've done? Oh, that's hard to say. It's anyone who is on stage with us right now, right? (laughs) I don't know if I have a favorite episode. I I feel like I've learned so much over the last year, but there's certainly themes that came out that resonated throughout multiple episodes. There's been like people hating on Mayo for whatever reason, including Juliana's partner in crime, Paul Yannon. We've learned about the followership of wine in Brazil (laughs) through... Many people's Instagram, I think that was interesting. And a really active debate that was never even, we never even asked about it. But a lot of people had a lot to say about natural wine for whatever reason. What do you think about those topics, Robert? I personally love mayo. No. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of takeaways in terms of, it was interesting to see, you know, talk to different influencers. And we actually tried to get a pretty wide swath. I remember people commenting as like, well, why are you bringing this person 
on your wine business podcast is like, because they have a following, they're actively talking about wine and then trying to get a really wide mix of people who are talking about wine in different ways. And still are, to date, our most popular episode is the one with Charlie Fu, who's a wine berserker moderator and has a pretty interesting following. But to talk about the impact of wine berserkers on buying habits in the US and Berserker Day was quite interesting. I learned a lot in that episode. And then the other is where I love to nerd out is we had Anita Oberholster, who's at UC Davis in charge of the smoke taint task force, which was really kind of interesting to learn a little bit more about the science. A lot of times we cover just business topics or pricing and things that are impacting, but to hear a little bit about what's actually plaguing California from a fire perspective and what are we doing about it? What do we know about it? What don't we know about it? There was just so much there. I think I listed that episode a couple of times, not just for editing purposes, but actually to try to like understand <laughs> what she was saying. So when people talk about things, there's a lot of misinformation out there around a lot of these things. And so I like where there's something where it's a source of truth. And I really enjoyed that episode. So it sounds like we have a couple of listeners who want to ask some questions. Robin O'Connor, do you want to ask a question or Yvonne? Yes. Hello, Robert, and hello, Peter. My name is Yvonne, an MW student living in New Jersey. And first, I wanted to thank you very much for your incredible work and congratulate you on one year of doing this. And my favorite episodes were on wine.com with Tim Marston MW for very simple <laughs> reasons of getting really juicy, very specific monetary dollar amounts examples for my essays and also the Wines of Australia episode in Remystifying Wine with Aaron Ridgway. So eloquent, excellent analysis comparing their work with other regions and their activities and also Juliana's episode on influencers. Lots of really juicy details in there. Also excellent and helpful for our MW essays. So that's it. Hi, Lucy. Welcome to the stage. Do you have a question or a comment? Hey, Robert. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, everyone, for all your amazing insight on this topic. I was just curious about how you're utilizing a lot of the first-party data that you can really have access to with the sites like WineBid and stuff. I imagine over the past year with such an influx of new users that you just have so much new information. And I'm just curious if you all have like data science teams or anybody that thinks about how you can bucket those users together to create cool events or subgroups or anything of that nature. Thank you. Tess, do you think you might be able to have an answer in terms of what do you guys do with your data? Yeah, I can give a pretty high level informational answer. We are pretty private with the data that we collect as we do have data not only on our customers, but also on wine pricing itself. What I can tell you is that we really have utilized more and more that we've learned about our customers in the past year to reach out based on area, based on wine preference. WineBid is what I would like to consider still a startup. So we have a very small team and don't have any one person in particular in charge of data science. So it's definitely more of a collaborative environment between our marketing C-suite and engineering teams to analyze the data and make changes, whether that be to our websites, to our virtual events, or to how we communicate with our customers in general. Yeah, there was a bunch of data about in the finance space from the Areni think tank group that they had shared as well in that episode. That was quite interesting. Obviously, a little different than buying behavior data. 
And we're going to cover some of that in one of our future episodes with the CEO of Vivino. He talks a little bit about some of the areas that he's able to disclose around their buying behaviors and usage of the platform. That was a quite interesting episode. That should be going out tonight at midnight. Looking forward to that episode. Yeah, he was super candid. It's interesting because we've had a number of interviews that kind of didn't pan out because after we sent the interview list, they're like, yeah, we don't want to have that talk because it's a little bit too much information or too many details. So we've had a couple of people back away fairly last minute, which is always, you know, a little sad, but we always try to get good content and keep it balanced. You know, there's an aspect of trying to like get the information that we all want to actually know about versus what they're actually willing to share. I am curious. So we are trying to do something a little different. Obviously, there's a lot of podcasts like Wine for Normal People, Wine 101, and Levy Dalton's, who does you know these great prolific interviews. We are very much focused on the business side of wine. I'm curious, and maybe you could do another roundtable of what topics do you think would be interesting for the wine trade to cover in future episodes? We're always looking for good ideas. Well, I mean, there's a million of them, upcoming trends. I think it would be interesting to get a roundtable discussion of like somebody from LiveX, somebody from an auction house, and somebody from a major retailer, like one of the top five in the US, and have them talk about the trends that they see, or even Wine Searcher. But people who really have oversight over global trends, I think that would be super cool. Interesting. We've been toying with trying to figure out the new age demographics in terms of like millennial wine buying habits and Gen Z wine buying habits in terms of understanding what those mean for the wine space with some different research that is happening at the moment. So that's something interesting to add in there and actually doing it in a round table would be interesting. Yeah, I was going to say talking to some more consumer oriented brands that are reaching younger consumers about what's working well, like what are they actually seeing happen? at the point of sale or at checkout and learning more from them about how is this younger generation drinking? What are they buying? When are they buying? What marketing tools and platforms are most effective? So I'd be interested to hear some of those conversations. Yvonne, did you want to say something? Yes, I think it would be super interesting and helpful and maybe elucidating to get a view into the world of bulk wines and the vast unknown that that is and how it impacts supply and demand in the whole world. That would be super interesting from my perspective. Hey guys, you know another topic that I think would be really cool? When I started doing this in 2000, there was a particular trajectory that people had been taking for centuries. And then it was really kind of solidified for about 20 years based on Parker's ratings. And that was that at least Americans, the demographic in America, they started drinking Coca-Cola and then they moved to Australian wine and then they moved to new styled California wine, which was a much more sweet kind of fruit forward. And I don't mean sweet the way that non-wine people mean sweet, you know, I mean like four grams per liter sweet, but so slightly off dry. And then they would go to Bordeaux and have some of the lesser Bordeaux. And then they'd come back to classic California and the Rhone. And eventually they'd get to first growth Bordeaux and Burgundy. And those guys now live in Burgundy and in Germany. Well, with all of the new wines that are available, I wonder what collectors who are in their 40s today, what was their trajectory? How did they get where they are now? What path did they follow? I think that would be really cool. It's funny you mentioned that. Peter and I have long wanted to get like people who have got to this 
certain collector status? Like what was their journey? And actually talk about what does wine mean for them in terms of a business perspective? So if we get CEO of X company who is a collector of wine, but like when did they get into wine? How did that impact their business life? Like what were they buying? And talk about that. There's something maybe we could combine into a series of episodes around talking about this. That would be awesome. Yeah, especially if we can get the right people. (laughs) I did try to do that and got a friend who is a CEO of a public company one of the sort of leading new biotech companies. And he basically said his PR people would not let that happen. (laughs) So it may have to be different people of non-publicly traded companies. Yeah, exactly. That's the problem. Because as soon as you get to a publicly traded company or like a financial guy, they're bound and they can't say anything. So that's a problem. But we've got other collectors. I'll chat with you guys about this. We can figure it out because I want the info. That sounds good. It's really interesting, like, because wine is, and I think we had mentioned earlier, wine opens doors and and a lot of people get into it because they're like, hey, they're at a dinner party. But as their career kind of goes, how do they leverage their hobby or their passion of wine for business? It's an interesting topic, but then also factoring in the journey in terms of how their taste has changed. I remember when I first got into wine, I was definitely buying one thing and that morphed over time. And that journey is always interesting and something, you know, you talk about with people while you're sharing a glass. Nadine or Juliana or Tess, any other ideas on episodes? Yes. You know, I'm always thinking about Psalms or even people that want to leave other industries and get into wine. You know, I'm starting to do some writing and like have no idea what that pays. I'm getting offers to do things and people are like, what is your fee? And I have no idea (laughs) what my fee should be or what the average is and just the details behind all of this new stuff. Juliana may have insight into that. I, yeah, I do know absolutely. Liz Tosh, who's my co-author for Luxury Wine Marketing, told me that she's just got an article published in Forbes, but they pay like $50 an article. So it's not too much. <laughs> yeah, and I know writing doesn't, and that's kind of a side thing. I reached out to Wine Spectator, but their freelancers cannot make any money from any other way in the industry. But I think that's probably just specific to Spectator, but some of the other stuff just where people are asking what my fee is. And I know I'm kind of lowballing or just throwing a number out and then that kind of thing. Yeah, one thing that's clear from all the influencer interviews and Juliana helps shed some light on was basically a lot of the wineries don't actually know what they're doing or what they should be paying for or how they should be vetting it. And so it's kind of a little bit of trial and error in terms of what is the value that someone with X following and X engagement delivers to a brand and how do you calculate that? And Peter and I used to always joke that, you know, he's like, but how much wine do I sell because of it? And so a lot of our series was kind of like around influencers was having that debate with people and hearing, well, the winery wants this and what tactics they actually use to do it and what works and what doesn't work. And across the board, all the influencers that we talked with we're like, yeah, we don't want to work on a commission or an affiliate link. We have no problem linking people, but it's kind of a slightly different angle than maybe a lot of those smaller wineries would like it to be. It's not so straightforward as what it looks like visually to some people when they see this is a paid partnership. I think Taylor, though, with This Way With Tay did mention that she worked with Wine Access and they had like some sort of payment if people went through and that worked out well for her. In terms of other episodes, I really enjoy the episode with Will Blackman as well. I think hearing stories of people getting into the wine industry from different backgrounds is really interesting and how they're creating new opportunities and what he's doing with the wine MVP. So hearing more from influencers, people who got into the wine industry, like their personal stories. I I like that episode a lot. There's also been a huge trend around celebrity wine. We'd love to 
at some point talk with celebrities and like how much are they actually involved in various parts of the actual winemaking process or are they just putting their name on the label? That's an area we've been talking about as well. Total vomit. This is Gino Colangelo. I'd love to hear conversation about the scoring publications and do they still have the same impact they had years ago? Is it changing? Is it generational? Is it more for collectors or everyday wine drinkers? To me, that would be a fascinating conversation. That's something we've talked about as well. That's definitely an area where, and I think it might be generational. And I think we'd want to set some groundwork there in terms of like, are the scores targeting a certain demographic by age or wealth versus not? And then comparing that to maybe some of the natural wines where you're telling the story or just family-owned wineries that you're telling the story and not necessarily really reviewed or rated by a major publication. It would be interesting to compare those two. Yeah, both from the winery side, but also potentially from the publication or the critic side. We haven't done that interview. We did have an episode, one of the early ones, episode five, that talked about wine scores and their impact now and how they've been evolving. But I think getting that insight from the different angles from both the winery and the publication side would be fascinating. If you have that conversation, you know, slow wine rates wines by symbols, not by points, and based on sustainability and value and a couple of other criteria. So there are different rating systems. I just wonder where this world is going and if it's going to age out with older consumers like myself or if the new generations of wine drinkers are as sort of committed to scores as older drinkers. I mean, the slow wine rating is interesting in terms of the sustainability. That's definitely an interesting area as well. Like you see it as you go to Whole Foods, like how was my meat made? In which way was it treated? Like if you could do something related to that around wine. What I find is a lot of the issues, people talk about organic and biodynamic, but then a lot of the consumers, I think they hear these words, but they actually don't know what they mean. And so having a way to like, communicate that clearly to consumers would be an interesting topic as well in terms of what are organizations doing to facilitate that conversation and make it well known to the consumers that, hey, when I buy this, this actually means something. And in our episode with Vivino, he did mention that one of the things that their users want to hear about the most is the score. So for their Vivino score, but that's a different type of score than the traditional wine advocate or wine spectator type score. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. I think that I was curious to hear the episode tonight with Heine if, they, if he talked about the Vivino rating. Because I do think wine is still a confusing category for the average consumer and ratings and numerics and some type of scoring or system does help people narrow it down and figure out what they might want to drink. So I do think they serve a purpose. But I do think that the perception is changing and evolving. I mean, they must serve a purpose. Otherwise, places like Total Wine and BevMo wouldn't like put them front and center on their shelves when people are walking around or even on their websites. Robert, you know what else would be cool? Now, if any of you guys read the wine industry news, the Louis Perdue, so I'm doing a lot of read about Netflix went away from some sort of algorithm on how they suggest what you should watch and changed it to something else. And people are trying to apply that to wine. So talking to him about that might be very Yeah, it's essentially like the old, like, you just click a channel, I want to watch something and it'll serve you up content. I think of it like the trunk club where it's like, hey, you get sent a crate full of clothing, you choose what you like and send the rest back. A little bit harder to do that with wine in terms of sending the ones that you don't like back. But closing that loop and actually getting consumers to say, hey, I like this to the retailer is a super interesting area. I know some people have tried to do that, but it requires a lot of effort on the consumer part to close that loop. But it is an interesting topic as well. Don't forget about that report discount code for both consumer and buyers of X Chateau on their website. P 
Peter, you, we have a couple episodes in the pipe. What are you most excited about in terms of the coming episodes? Well, the ones that I've listened to and written the show notes for, I think Christian Wiley of Bodega Garzon and how Tanat has really come into play and how Garzon has led the way. I've often had the conversation with many wine brands, especially from regions that aren't as well known. Do you promote the brand first or the region first to build yourself into a you know, household name? And they're an example of someone doing it brand first and really, I think, leading the way for Uruguayan to not and apparently building an amazing property down there that hopefully one day we'll be able to actually go down and see. What about you? I really enjoyed our conversation with Laura Catena to talk about marketing high-end mullbacks and their kind of family story. But we don't have any other people raising their hand. So I definitely want to thank everybody for joining us. This is really fun to talk with people live and you have a chance to get some brainstorms in future episodes, but also talk about things that they like and their participation in our previous episodes. Yeah, it's been great to be with you guys. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you all. The next Global Wine Executive MBA program starts October 2021. Apply by August 31st to transform your wine career. Learn more at wineexecutivemba.sonoma.edu or look at the link in our show notes. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.